As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on. And just like buses, you wait months for a Grand Prix and then three come along at once. This opening triptych of races have all looked relatively similar, with Mercedes winning all three of them. It's looking like an ominously silver arrow season. But is there any hope for the rest? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to look back at the Hungarian Grand Prix and what it means for the rest of the season are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Mark, last time we heard from you on the podcast, we were worried about you ending up in jail. So have you kept out of Hungarian jail? Yes, so far. I've only got to uh, last tonight and tomorrow morning, and then um, I should be making good my escape. <laughs> Hopefully not from jail, though. That's a good choice of words. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, today um, you, you you talked about um, the uh, any hope for the others. It's... Um, it, it, it sort of give a, a depressing picture, but I think there is hope for a better contest than we had, let's say. Um, but, um, yeah, it's very difficult to uh, look beyond one of the two Mercedes drivers, isn't it, for the uh, the seasonal honours? Obviously, in the battle between those two, strong as Valtteri Bottas is, and this is another decent performance, certainly in qualifying, to get so close to, to Hamilton after struggling a bit. So, yeah, you feel like it's a, it's heading Hamiltonwards, but we'll get into some of the performance trends we've seen. We've also got Scott Mitchell. Now, it's going to be whispering Scott Mitchell, I should call you today, because you're having to be slightly subdued to uh, to avoid causing problems in your in your domestic arrangements. Uh, yeah, that's right, Ed. Uh, I'm in this, uh, I think as uh, Mark's described it, I'm in smooth jazz mode. So uh, hello to all you night owls out there. We're going to have uh, we're going to have a fun time on this podcast this evening. Uh, basically, um, one of the <laughs> unexpected perils of working a Grand Prix remotely is uh, my uh, my partner, Sarah, is currently on extraordinarily early starts. Uh, so she's getting up at like 4am, which means she's in bed by... 9 9 p.m uh which is not compatible <laughs> with the workload of a, of a grand prix sunday uh so uh I, 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 she doesn't listen to this podcast she's got better things to do it unfortunately so um she won't hear this but uh yeah i i'd like to think it's worth it if it's worthwhile but um obviously only our true listeners and fans can be the judge of that Yes, and I'm sure the, the seven or eight of them will be uh, will be thrilled you're you're making this effort. But uh, to pick up on what Mark was saying, are, are you feeling this is ominous? The the form we saw in in Hungary. I know it's early days, but Mercedes is just looking mighty, isn't it? Yeah. Well, our po- post race um, verdict uh, or analysis, however you want to put it, on on the race website, therace.com, uh, was about whether or not Mercedes can actually do a clean sweep this year. Uh, you know, based on the Based on the free races so far, I see no reason why they can't. Um, 
And yeah, it's it's just it's going to be a, a Hamilton versus Bottas title fight, which probably means, and it sounds a bit unfair saying this in an underwhelming tone, um, but it probably means that Lewis is going to match Michael Schumacher's record this year, isn't he? Because I don't really see him being beaten by Bottas on this kind of form. Yeah, it's 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 looking uh, very very ominous. Well, let's uh, let's get into the, the detail of the weekend. I guess, Mark, last week I sort of said the battle up the front was relatively simple and it, it kind of was again, certainly in terms of the race win, wasn't it? With Lewis Hamilton starting up front and he, he was just utterly, utterly in control. Started from pole, was just there. Could you know? I don't want to say it's easy because it's never that easy, but it was straightforward, wasn't it? Yes, his only potential competition took himself out of contention within second. Well, no, less than seconds before the start. Before the actual start, Valtteri Bottas had um, sort of reacted um, falsely um, to what he he was. He was all attuned like a you know a, a racehorse waiting for the lights to go out, and he got distracted by the lights on his dashboard going out, and reacted to that, and then immediately realised his mistake and pulled the clutch back in which meant he didn't quite go across the sensor, which would have triggered a jump start, but it meant that when the gantry lights did go out, he was all bogged down. And he, by the time he'd got past all the cars that had passed him in the, you know, the first few, few metres, um, yeah, that was him done, really. So he, he did well to sort of get back up and put a bit of pressure on um, Max Verstappen and take a podium, but... Yeah, as far as the contest for the win, um, that that was it. That was it was it was done as soon as he made that mistake. Yeah, I think he was down in sixth place at the end of the first lap, so it was all about coming back through. Couldn't quite get Verstappen in the end, but that jump start is interesting because he did effectively jump the start. Uh, Sky Sports F1 covering it in the UK did a very good analysis with Corinne Chandock and Anthony Davidson, where they they showed I think it was five or six frames he went before. Uh, b- before the lights went out and, it, and Valtteri said it was partly because he couldn't see the lights that well because the halo was just at the wrong height uh, in terms of the, the geometry of looking at it and then yeah like you say he, he responded to the, uh, the the light change on his dash but yeah that that, that was was really a, a shame because it, it, took, it took part of the, of the fun out of the race I guess in, in that regard but we did also Scott have another element of fun in the race who did make it interesting almost removing himself before the start you know we we have seen drivers crashing on reconnaissance laps and going off on formation laps before but to see Max Verstappen of all people in the wall on a lap to the grid was astonishing wasn't it it really was um it's just not the sort of thing that you're you're used to seeing um especially uh especially when it's as someone who is as uh, refined a racing driver as Max is, but I guess, you know, searching for the limits of grip in conditions like that. So those reconnaissance laps are more important and he just sort of over, overstepped the mark a little bit. Um, <clears throat> it's very, I can't think of too many examples where the driver that finishes second um, was in the barrier before the race even started. Certainly not in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the days where the T car doesn't exist. Um, I suppose there would have been a few more examples of like shunts in warm-ups or cars being broken down or, you know, when races would be restarted. I seem to remember um, a couple at the turn of the millennium, for example, cars that were broken on the first lap shunts and stuff and then people running back to get into the backup car. Obviously, that doesn't exist in Formula 1 anymore. So um, it was a massive race against time for Red Bull. And I think Christian Horner said... Is, uh, I think he was probably embellishing slightly, but he said that the, the the job they had on the front left normally takes an hour and a half to fix in the garage, and they did it in about 20, 25 minutes on the grid, got it done with 25 seconds to go, and it was um, it was basically a matter of whether or not I think it was the wishbone was uh, broken, and if it had been, it would have been game over. But as it was, I think they just changed, I said just, they changed the track rod um, and something else as well. They were looking at all parts of the car. Unfortunately, it wasn't, yeah, that's right. And it, it wasn't the um, it wasn't the wishbones. It wasn't terminal. And then, yeah, Max Verstappen owes a few people a nice dinner and a few beers. I think <laughs> it was actually really ex- well executed all round because not only was it was the repair done quickly, but you know, Verstappen could easily have gone to the garage, couldn't he? In which case, he wouldn't have been able to start from the grid. But going to the grid, maximise the chance of them getting it sorted. Didn't want to neglect the grid position. And if he'd not been in that position, he wouldn't have been able to have the good run he had at the, at the start down the outside and, and get himself up uh, 
up into second place. So it shows the, how fine the margins are, doesn't it, Mark? But I guess Max Verstappen's the kind of driver who can make a pretty silly, if understandable in those conditions, mistake like that, an embarrassing mistake, and turn it into another very, very fine race performance. Yeah, and to pick up on the point that Scott was making there about finding out the grip in, in the changeable conditions, that's absolutely why he made such fantastic progress in the first few laps. You know, he was from seventh on the grid, he was third by the first corner and second a couple of laps after that. And that he did just have this fantastic feel for the grip, just as Lewis did, which is why he was sort of eight seconds up the road by then. Um, but they really were in a different league to the others in those conditions. And I think it's um, it's not just about their natural feel, it's about how confident they are in their natural feel and how confident they are in pushing on reconnaissance laps to find out exactly where it is and where the grip is and in you know knowing that they can usually they can usually rescue it and uh, in this case the, the red bulls a tricky car maybe that played its part but in this case uh, he didn't quite rescue it and uh, we we had the situation that we did but yeah i mean it, it, he sort of made amends didn't he um, by, by his performance and that's just i really just think um those two are operating at a head and shoulders above everybody else at the moment. How good was that first lap? Or rather, the first, I guess, what, 10, 15 seconds of Verstappen's race? That just, you know, he, he aced the start, then he? he was helped by Bottas and Perez, I think it was, going backwards. Um, but it was just, just absolutely brilliant. And there was just no sign of trepidation, was there, under breaking and turning into turn one? Um, that the front left might go at any second. It was just completely out of mind. I just absolutely nailed it, seventh to third. Um, and just, yeah, just put him on the way to a great result. I, I was just, uh, I was like, I, I think I said um, as part of our sort of social media commentary that given the amazing job that the mechanics had done, Max owed them a really big performance. And he'd done basically the the legwork <laughs> in the first 15 seconds of a 71 lap race. <laughs> Yeah, and I just think the mentality needed to do that is is mighty. Like Mark says, just that confidence and the feel and the, and the judgment, that whole package, just really, really impressive. And he did have to work for it because obviously Bottas was was coming back through uh, once he cleared uh, cleared some of the cars behind, including Lance Stroll. Of course, he'd started third. Uh, Bottas, then they, they decided Mercedes to take that extra pit stop, uh, put him on uh, a new set of, uh, of hards. They were 13 laps younger than, than Verstappen's with the hope of catching him with a with a tire advantage towards the end and it came very very close to working didn't it mark it did yeah it was a very similar situation to last year when if you remember mercedes was um pressuring verstappen again for the win with lewis and um they decided to take the gamble because i had such a big gap behind them to um, throw on a new set of tyres before it was too late and have another go because they couldn't pass them on track. So it was exactly the same situation again, except it was only for second place this time and it was um, Valtteri rather than Lewis. And it might have worked. It was just a little bit of uh, traffic that Valtteri had to get through and that that, that made the difference in the end. But um, yeah, Max, there, there was one really classy bit of Max's performance there and he did it last year as well. When he was on those old tyres, and it looks like they're they're just about finished, and the, the the Mercedes comes in and pits and is coming back out on the new tyres that are coming back at him at a rate of knots. All of a sudden, Max pulled out a mighty few laps, and it just made the difference. And it, 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 he obviously had been conserving his his old rubber, and when they saw which way the you know Mercedes were going to play it, he was able to just pull that just that little bit of distance and had he not had that in his pocket um Valtteri would have been with him and probably passed um before the end so it was it was quite um a sophisticated performance it wasn't just all bravado it was it was it was a lovely lovely performance yeah he's a really really good time manager for Stappen as well that's sometimes uh overlooked but you're right actually to draw that comparison with last year I didn't really recalled that but yeah of course that there was that phase just after Hamilton stopped when Hamilton uh, was expected to catch him hand over fist but the gap was sort of held pretty much wasn't it for it's only three or four laps but it makes all the difference and that's where the driver makes a difference just these small things make the difference between between second and third we see that that constantly but really that was the only 
question mark up front once things had settled down. Obviously, the interesting question was was Lance Stroll, who was in the mix for a podium in the Racing Point, having qualified third. Lots of speculation about what's going on with uh, with him and his teammate in the future. We'll talk about that later on in, in this podcast. But yeah, Stroll never looked like he was going to convincingly be able to beat Verstappen or Bottas to, to that third place, did he? So a good a good performance for him. But I was I was hoping for a little bit better because he goes well in, in wet conditions and we know the racing point is quick in, in dry conditions in, in, in the race. Yeah, I get the sense he surrendered on that battle quite early on on um trying to mix it with um, Max and Lynn Lewis. And once uh, Valtteri got past as well, I think um, he, he sort of you know, cashed in his chips a bit, really. Um, I don't think the car is um, slower than the Red Bull in, in either qualifying or race pace. And it finished, you know, a good 40 seconds down. And I think that was just not, not that... Um, Lance was that far off as a, as a driver. I just think he'd probably thought this is a, an important time to uh, start banging in some results, and this is a good result. Um, so let's not throw it away by uh, trying to push beyond what um, you know he, he felt he had the stomach for. I guess when you're up against Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen in the wet, you're probably thinking, you know, I'm not, am I ready for this yet? And he didn't. He didn't give the appearance of being up for it. He just gave the appearance of wanting to put in a safe performance that um, that brought home the the good result. And I guess he probably needed that because Racing Point has had a slightly disappointing start to the season. Best finishes of six in the first two races. It's had a car that could could have had podiums in all three races ultimately. Uh, so they did want to at least bank some bank some decent points. So how would you look at it, Scott? Would you be happy if you're racing point, third and fourth on the grid? They ended up with Stroll fourth, Perez down in seventh place. Perez had all the wheels but in the world off off the line on the, the wrong side of the grid to the slightly more slippery side. So again, it's a little bit disappointing for racing point, even though it's a strong two-car points finish, which a few years ago would have been a great result for them in, in a race. Yeah, but there's not really... I don't know. Maybe I'm being harsh, but Stroll spent so long stuck behind a Haas, for example, and just getting worked up that he couldn't clear clear Kevin Magnussen um, once sort of once the the early pit stops and the Haas's change of tyres on on the formation lap had given them track position. And you know, if the, like Mark said, it seemed like he sort of resigned himself to, to to not being part of that battle early on. But you know, there, I feel like there was a podium. Um, there was a podium on the cards for for a racing point today, and unfortunately, it was the I think the weaker of the two that had the track position early on and didn't make the best of it. And likewise, based on the pace that we've seen, was there any was there any real reason for Perez being beaten by a Ferrari today? Yeah, I mean, yes, he lost track position early on, but it's a long race, more than an hour and a half. You'd think that they would have been you know, Ferrari really unhappy with their performance and still felt that they did a bad job today. Um, so, I, I, fourth and seventh, I just don't see how you can be happy with that when you've locked out the second row. And you did, they didn't. Let's not forget, they didn't fluke the second row. It was a second row on merit. So you have to say that if you've started third and fourth because you're the third and fourth quickest cars, and you finish fourth and seventh in the race, even if you've got a weaker race car on Sundays. That's bad conversion, isn't it? So it's it's not a it's not a great afternoon. Yeah, it was certainly a bit trafficy for for Perez in the end. But but he did say probably Stroll was the lesser racing point driver. But we should say that he was the one who qualified ahead, albeit only by a small margin. And, and Perez said he was feeling a little bit a little bit dizzy and his neck was hurting a bit, so he's struggling a bit with with fatigue. But um, you know, we've criticised Lance Stroll for not making the most of his opportunities. And while maybe there was a podium on there. He still ultimately has come out the weekend with the with a stronger result, so so I guess he deserves some some credit for that. But yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, Mark? Because I think we see we say this with drivers; it takes them a bit of time to get used to being really strong at the front, and it's almost like racing points learning this now because they've never had a car that's been quite this quick, have they? They've had a car that's been clearly the fourth best, but very much in the midfield group. But this is this is a car that actually is going to have a shot at podiums on current form week in week out, and that slightly changes the whole the whole environment doesn't it and the whole decision making process and the sharpness yeah it's a different environment i guess um i think sergio is is fully capable of um performing comfortably 
um, in that part of the field, and I think he will. He's just had a bit of a a, a bad run, really. A few things not quite clicked, and but I'm sure they will. And Lance is just sort of building up that, you know, familiarity with um, running in this part of the grid. This is, you know, someone who didn't get past Q1 for um, many races last year. So he's not not because he 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 should have been um, up up the front or anything. Just just because of the the car that he had last year compared to this. So yeah, it, it, a very different set of demands, and he's he's still sort of filling in a few um, few of his data banks. But I, I'm sure I'm sure Sergio will be putting some very good races together um, anytime soon. We should quickly mention the performance of Red Bull in general. We've talked about it in the previous podcast. We know the car's a bit unstable, but this was a really disappointing pace performance overall. And also, we've got to add to that, Alex Albon was struggling in, in qualifying as well, and then he. You know, he got fifth place in the race, which isn't a bad result, but uh, because he was in that uh, trafficy mix in the uh, in the middle of the points positions, he uh, he was well down from from Max Verstappen. But what, what do you think, Scott? Do you think Red Bull are a little bit lost? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty clear that they don't know exactly what the problem is. Otherwise, they'd be working on uh, a more specific solution. I think um, I'm trying to remember how exactly. Christian Horner characterised it. I think he said it's they've got a basically an aerodynamic misbehaviour at the moment. And speaking to Verstappen after qualifying and Alex as well, there just seems to be it just seems to be weird. It just seems that they they have understeer that that, that turns into very very dramatic oversteer without much warning. Um, and you know I'm I'm not an expert at this sort of thing. My sort of basic interpretation of that is that. Um, the car's not inviting a lot of confidence on turning, so maybe the drivers aren't being that assertive on turning, which is maybe inducing a bit of understeer. But then, if they do try and be aggressive and are trying to attack, I, the, the the rear gives up and then it snaps round. And Verstappen says that the problem is that in any no car's easy to drive when you're driving it on the limit, because by definition, if you're on the limit, you're close to overstepping it. But he says that in this car when you get near the limit, the rear goes and it just goes. So there's no like reading it and balancing it and leaning on the edge of the car. And we saw that through testing. We saw that in Austria. So now that we've had it at the Hungara ring, it kind of proves that even the the Red Bull's inherent strength is now arguably a weakness because at a circuit like this, where you have the constant changes of direction, you know, a car that has good mechanical grip and good downforce, it's that's only going to manifest itself if you can then keep attacking corner after corner after corner. But if you're going into this flowing run of corners, hesitant on turning or leaving a bit at the apex, it's just going to add up to a load of time loss. And I think on on one lap in qualifying, I think Max was giving away most of half a second for on the entry to two corners just because he wasn't able to attack them at medium speed, which is um, which is a horrific amount of time to be given away. Yeah, and uh, 1.4 seconds off in, in qualifying, the fastest Red Bull of Verstappen was. So I, I asked uh, the Mercedes drivers after, after qualifying if they were surprised at the gap. They didn't know how big the gap was, and they did genuinely look uh, quite, quite surprised by that. But I think, Mark, Alex Albon's performance probably supports everything Scott said about the characteristics of the car, because in a situation like this, you know, got Albon in his second full season up against a fantastically good driver in Max Verstappen. We do see this when when there's big car trouble. Sometimes, if you're paired with a with a great driver and you're still finding your feet or whatever, the gaps get exaggerated. So while by definition Albon isn't getting the most from the car, we've got to cut him some slack in terms of uh, his performance level. Yeah, indeed, and I think the gap that we we saw in qualifying um, wasn't an accurate barometer of where he's at. It, it was a much bigger deficit. Um, because he got, uh, yeah, well, he got had over on where he was positioned um, for his uh, final uh, Q2 lap, which was behind a Ferrari, which needs a very gentle outlap, and the Red Bull needs a, a harder outlap. So he was all in the, operationally, it didn't go right for him, and uh, he was a bit upset about that. I think he should have been a comfortable Q3 qualifier, and then we would have had a more accurate barometer of exactly how he was comparing to Max. He's not at Max's level um, but he's not as far off as he looked, and he put a very tidy race together. Actually, um, good damage limitation. Had to fight his way through 
those cars that he shouldn't have qualified behind, and um, he just he got it. He got the job done, and I thought uh, he went somewhere to um, retrieving the what's not not a great situation for him at the moment. Yeah, it's a pretty good strength of his. He does have that ability to recover reasonably well. It's something Gasly sometimes struggled with. Obviously, it's the logical comparison because of what happened with him last year with uh, with Red Bull. But you know, Albon's got. He's a quality driver, and it's a difficult situation. But you know, he's going to have to just knuckle down, make sure the weekends are executed well. The team's got to make sure that all the traffic works well, etc. In qualifying, we'll uh, hopefully uh, see the best of him. Uh, Scott Ferrari. Ferrari was a lot stronger. Sebastian Vettel finished sixth. Charles Leclerc had a pretty horrible race. Ended up down in eleventh place. He was very unhappy at being put on the softs, which I presume. Uh, was a decision of uh, Ferrari to split the strategy a little bit, especially as there was all this constant expectation rain around. If you follow all the radio feeds, there was basically everyone was being told rain was definitely arriving at a very precise time that all varied. If it's rain in eight minutes, rain in ten minutes, rain in twelve laps, and it never properly came, did it? So, but it, it was a horrible race for the club. But overall, for Ferrari, at least encouraging that on this track configuration, they are stronger. You should tell Ferrari that because they're not particularly optimistic. Um, they feel quite downbeat actually about their performance. As for uh, on the tyres, um, I don't think they were trying to split the strategies. Uh, I think, based on what they were saying in their post-race media debrief, um, they were wary of rain coming, and they thought that the mediums or the hards would be a bit too difficult to get up to temperature. So the plan was to go to the softs because they expected rain in a few laps time. So in my my opinion, I think there's there's already a not basic mistake, but I think there's quite a common mistake there in they're trying to preempt something that is very very difficult to preempt. <laughs> also, um, putting their drivers on the soft which is not a good race tire around the hangar. That's the other thing. It's one thing if the soft was a normal soft, but it was it it was not a great soft option, was it? So so they're sort of they're not really when you're in a situation like they are, I just feel like the best thing you can do is race the conditions that you're in and race what's in front of you, not try and preempt stuff because that's a bit dangerous. And it was clear two laps into the first long run on Friday that the soft was a terrible race tyre. And historically, that's just what it's like at the Hungaro ring. So that was a slightly unusual one. And basically, um, the second Vettel was told box for softs, um, he was like, well, for mediums, right? Because the softs, you know, for the graining and Ferrari was like, okay, and changed it. I asked Vettel about this after the race. He said it was a team decision. Um, I think it's a team decision in so far as Sebastian Vettel is part of the team <laughs> still. Um, and I think it was just his experience to overrule them and just say, come on guys, this is stupid. And then, yeah, so when the rain didn't come, um, Leclerc struggled massively and Vettel was actually able to complete a relatively normal race and bank a pretty good result in the circumstances. Yeah, I guess this is one of those ones where Vettel doesn't have to lord it over everyone because the uh, the facts and the radio messages speak for themselves, don't they? Uh, but Mark, I mean, would you take any positives being Ferrari? I mean, we know their engine is is weak. This is a less power dependent circuit, so at least it it kind of confirms that the car isn't aero wise isn't horrific. At least <laughs> it probably shows how far they've fallen that not being horrific is uh, is considered uh, a positive. But would you would you look at it slightly more positively than maybe Ferrari are considering what happened in Austria, or do you, do you agree with uh, Bonotto's rather disappointed outlook? No, I agree with Mattia. I think um, yeah, they pulled a, a result from it um, mainly thanks to Seb. I think, um, but you know they they were lapped. And they had one car out of the points, and uh, the other one that was in the points was lapped. And so uh, that's on a track that's probably going to be better for it than most of the other ones that are left. It's um, very, very forgiven of a lack of power, and it rewards good downforce, which it, it has. Um, and that's that's the performance we've seen from a, a track that's favourable to it. Um, they were lapped, so yeah, I, I don't. I don't think they've got much to, given that the problem is the engine and given the restrictions that there are now upon engine development, I, I really, I, it's almost like this season must be a write-off for them and they must be absolutely nailing everything for them to get a, a competitive power unit that meets the current tech directives um, in time for next year. 
My attempt to uh, try and take some positives from it for them has, uh, has failed miserably there, hasn't it? But uh, whatever, ha- you know, it's a terrible situation for Ferrari overall. At least they could they could fight for an, uh, I guess, a passable result. But uh, it shows how far they've fallen. Well, let's have a look a little bit at the minor points finishes. Daniel Ricciardo in, in eighth place. A bit of a weird weekend for Renault. Actually, it's been a weird season because, uh, I mean, I asked both the drivers about this on Saturday after qualifying. The Renault seems to pop up at times looking pretty quick and pretty strong. And then at other times, usually the times where it really matters, it, it's not so quick. And Ocon had a horrible race. Ricardo actually did a pretty good job uh, to take eight, but it, it's not really coming together at Renault, is it, Mark? No, this is it, it's, it's shown all the same patterns, just a slight variation um, from what we've seen of that um, that group's cars over the last couple of years. It, it's It's works reasonably well in a narrow window and if it falls out of that window it looks mediocre um daniel ricciardo did a fantastic job i thought with uh, making his tires last so long so that he could get onto a you know a really fresh set um, and have a good tire offset at the end he was combining great pace you know, that's how long he went he went to yeah lap 43 um with the and still doing good Still doing good times on his mediums, which uh, the medium used to say the soft was a problematical tire. It was, but so was the medium. It needed to be nursed, and uh, he managed to do that and you know come out with a good tire offset and um, put in some good performance at the end. But again, like like with Seb and Ferrari, I think it was more of a driver performance and the car performance. I don't really <clears throat> see that Renault have got much to be excited about from this weekend. Yeah, not looking good for them. Uh, Ricardo did finish on the road ahead of Kevin Magnussen, who, who finished ninth on the on the, the chequered flag anyway, but got dropped to tenth for reasons we'll talk about in a minute. So, Carlos Sainz ninth, Kevin Magnussen tenth. I actually thought Magnussen's drive was really good because although he, he got up to third early on, thanks to pitting on the the formation lap, both he and Roman Grosjean were were called in, of which more later. Obviously, the race for Magnussen was was never to finish on the podium or anything. It was about the bottom of the points, wasn't it? And the rolling roadblock that was Charles Leclerc did him a bit of a favour in, in that regard. But but Scott, kind of a, a really nice performance from Magnussen. It's good that that penalty, we'll talk about in a second, didn't cost him a point. Yeah, it was a sort of drive that you sort of feel like should be rewarded with a little bit more than what it was. I mean, yeah, he, he finished in the points for the first time this season for him and Haas. So he's got something out of it. And when you get knocked out in Q1, that is obviously a very good Sunday, um, especially in a in a car that, just cannot get track position because of its qualifying weakness. Um, he he just did a great job. There was, you know, as you say, he didn't get distracted by the fact that he was up higher and out of position. He knew where his race was. It, he did a brilliant job to frustrate Stroll, keep him behind him without losing any time. He didn't get bogged down in in battles that, that didn't really concern him, and he handled the whole situation better than Grosjean, who obviously slipped back well outside of the points. I know that Roman picked up a bit of damage. Um, he was adamant that that cost him quite a lot of performance, but I just felt that, yeah, Magnussen was just on a very, very good level today. Probably one of the best, um, one of the most impressive performances that I've seen from him in, in F1 anyway. Yeah, a good, a good strong performance from, uh, from him. I think Grosjean did lose some performance. He lost a big, fairly sizable bit of, uh, of body work. Uh, he wasn't very happy with Albon, but, you know, Albon... Alvin made made the decisive dive, maybe a bit marginal, but you know it was a he got the car stopped. It wasn't a stroll in uh, in Austria type situation. But this penalty mark. Now the short answer is both drivers were instructed to pit on the formation lap by the team. They both did so. They took slicks. This got them great track position. But this was illegal. Can you just explain why? Not not really. Um, <laughs> it's it, it was it fell foul of the. Um, driver aids rule that was introduced oh, partway through 2017 i think um i don't think it was, i don't think that regulation was intended um, to be used uh, in this way but as as ever when you try and encapsulate a situation in regulation in words um there will it, it will fall foul it, it can fall foul of in a in a, a way that wasn't um, envisaged and because of that, the, um, the stewards are obliged to apply it cause to the letter. So, uh, yeah, so they, uh, the the decision was to come in um, before the race had started and then put, put themselves on the slick tyres was being discussed between, you know, the 
the engineer and the the driver, which you know is a perfectly reasonable situation. Um, but because I, I don't know the, I haven't looked yet at the precise wording of the um, the penalty, but presumably, um, I don't know if you have, but presumably because the um, the, the order or the uh, suggestion came from the pit rather than the driver, I don't know. But it, um, yeah, it it, it was um, fell foul of the regulation of um, driver coaching. Yeah, the, the key thing in the verdict was that the stewards determined that the team instructed the driver to pit. I've listened to the radio transmissions, and yeah, they they were both given the instruction to pit from the pit wall. Uh, Grosjean had, had said that he was contemplating slicks, and then he got called in just before the pit entry, and there'd been a bit of discussion with Magnussen, and then, yeah, they said, right, box, box, and then he agreed. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, mm. and yeah, he had this really stupid situation at Daniel Kvyat, who finished 12th in this race. He was basically calling over the radio wanting to pit for slicks on the on the formation lap which is the right call he was getting audibly irritated because the team just wasn't responding presumably precisely because of this technical directive that they felt they, they couldn't do it so the stewards were right to issue the penalty according to that regulation these technical de- 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 these technical directives are supplementary regulations that aren't published but the rule is there you're not allowed to have any conversation other than for safety reasons and it's to start stop messing about with start settings or with tire temperature management and how many burnouts you do all this kind of thing it wasn't intended for this so uh, yeah a very stupid uh, regulation i think it's good that magnuson still got a points finish it did cost him a point but it didn't cost him a points finish if uh, if if you like but credit to Haas for making that uh, cool Gary Anderson's not very happy about that either he he said he'd have fallen foul of that rule quite a few times if he was in, involved in F1 but I mentioned Kvyat he finished behind Charles Leclerc and obviously Leclerc as we said wrong tyre horrible race buried in in traffic Pierre Gasly who once again I was really impressed with this weekend he had all sorts of problems um, the engine and <laughs> associated systems were conspiring against him, but he still made Q3, not that he could run in it because of the engine. And then he retired relatively early in the race, but not before he'd been a bit irritated at Daniel Kvyat for, for holding him, him up. But we should talk about McLaren that was also in this part of the field. Sainz got that ninth place, Norris 13th. The pit stops were bad for both, weren't they? Because Sainz got the unsafe release into Latifi, which is bad news for Latifi's race. And Norris just got held in the pit uh, in, the, in the pit box because there wasn't any space in the in the sort of fast lane for him to pull out into. So Scott McLaren, a bit of a frustrating weekend for them. They weren't super fast, but uh, just one of those hard races where nothing quite fell for them. Yeah, they were expecting a, a tougher one after such big highs in in Austria, and you know um, it wasn't a good race if you'd written a feature before the weekend about why McLaren could beat Ferrari. Um, but I, I've I don't feel like I've got too much egg on my face because obviously the Ferraris were not exactly great and um, both teams only got one car in the point, ultimately. Um, McLaren obviously, McLaren lost out sort of early on and in that midfield fight, when you lose track position, you're going to, you're going to struggle to get it back. So uh, obviously Sainz has inherited uh, an extra point, an extra place in ninth. Um, But uh, it was a weird sight um, I can't remember when it was, maybe like halfway through the race, maybe a bit later. We have Charles Leclerc and Lando Norris, two of the undisputed stars of the future and, you know, stars of now really, um, who have won races and stood on the podium respectively, uh, going wheel to wheel, really hard battle over 14th place. <laughs> yeah, it's a marker of how odd F1 2020 is and where Ferrari and McLaren find themselves. That was a great little battle. I like that. And they, they, they respected each other as well. Hard but fair. That's what we, we like to see. Um, now, we do want to try and mention everyone. The Alfa Romeos, Kimi Raikkonen 16th, Antonio Giovinazzi 17th. Kimi Raikkonen qualified last on merit for the first time in his F1 career. The Alfa Romeo isn't very good. Uh, Giovinazzi's lap on board, it was, it was fine. It was nothing stunning, but it was nothing terrible. Uh, Kimi's was a little bit messy, but, you know, a lot of work to do at Alfa Romeo. And then Williams... 18th and 19th with George Russell and Nicholas Latifi. Obviously, Latifi had that uh, had the, the the puncher after the uh, impact with uh, with science in the pits. Nothing he could have done about that. As that was the uh, the unsafe release from uh, from Williams, uh, of course. And uh, yeah, Russell 
loads of wheel spin, brilliant qualifying performance. He's 12th, maybe had the pace to get Q3 and then, uh, yeah, just dropped down to the, to the back. Latifi, I think, had a really strong first lap. He, he's pretty good in the work. He got up to 10th place briefly on, on, on the O's early laps, which is a good effort. But, uh, but Mark Williams has, has kind of had a few nice qualifying cameos, but the races just don't go so well for them, do they? I think there may be something about the car, um, maybe in the way it's uh, using its tyres, but it, it, I don't think it's just circumstantial. I think it really is arguably the slowest car in the race, but it's not in qualifying. Um, it's got enough of a little window there um, over a single lap or a couple of laps that um, you know a really quick young guy like George can pull a time out of it, but it, it, won't, it won't do a, a whole sequence of them. And it just sinks back down. So I mean that that trait was exaggerated by his, you know, his, his bad start and stuff like that, and also by um, the way that uh, Nicholas's pit stop went. But yeah, it, it, it's something. It, it's it's much better than last year. They are able to mix it with other cars and you know even you know qualify quite respectably. But yeah, it's still not nailed. It's still not a. It's still not a good race car yet. Um, so they need to get to the bottom of what that uh, disconnect is really because um, it's 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 three races now and it's become quite a quite apparent that it's a it's a trait yeah they were the slowest car in the red bull ring by some margin probably about half a percent on race pace off off the rest i think this one will have hurt because this is a track position race isn't it so the hope is qualify well hold your track position but uh, it didn't it didn't work for both for, for either of them which is uh yeah, real shame. There's still some work to be done uh, done there. We should briefly mention Lewis Hamilton's fastest lap. Were you surprised, uh, Scott, that they, they gambled with that, that late pit stop to get that extra point? I was just because Mercedes isn't a team that leaves anything to chance. And while there was obviously the there was obviously the, the gap, I was just having a look and um, seeing what the final gap was in the end. Lewis has won the race by 8.7 seconds with a fastest lap of a 16.6 set on lap 70. So he's pulled three seconds or so on Verstappen on his fastest lap, which was the last lap. So, you know, what's that? What do we reckon? A margin of about four or five seconds on the pit stop going wrong? That's not, that's not huge. Um, so I guess that's the only element of surprise. Mercedes makes it very clear that they don't, they don't deal in negligence, do they? They don't, do anything that's going to risk um, the bigger result. And it's a marker of how confident that team is in itself, in its operations and in its driver, that they were willing to roll the dice for an extra extra point at the end. Because ultimately, I guess you've, it's quite easy to sort of turn the wick up right at the end when the car's low on fuel, but you're getting Lewis to go out there and put in a put in purple sectors and set a new fastest lap time. He's going to be leaning on the car um, and when you lean on the car more, you do risk something going wrong. So yeah, for a few reasons, I guess a slightly bigger risk than we're used to seeing. But I just think it's a sign of just how good that team is, to be honest. If they'd left Lewis out there and not gone for that extra stop, then the fastest lap would have been Valtteri's. So they're competing against each other for the World Championship, essentially. And I think Mercedes are just trying to give each of them equal opportunity and Lewis had done enough um, to buy himself that margin. So why, why should they deny him the opportunity of the extra point to, to win with it? Uh, so I think they're just trying to play fair by both drivers and Toto Wolff was talking yesterday about them probably going to look at um, their strategy of not doing offset strategies, you know, so that, um, that it's pretty much decided, you know, in the, in the first stint, they're, they're going to, they the might, revert back to how it was and given the the guy the that's in a disadvantageous position another crack at it um strategically so i think they realize that the 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 championship is between their two guys and they're just trying to give them as level a playing field as possible and if one of them buys himself an advantage with his performance then you know he shouldn't be restricted from um, maximizing the possibilities of that yeah having said all that one of these days somebody's gonna bin it chasing the fastest lap or there's going to be some finger trouble in a pit stop which will uh is bound to happen eventually but yeah you've got to go for every point haven't you so uh understandable and yeah 26 point weekend for lewis hamilton uh his performance i guess uh, deserved that 
As always in Formula One, it's not just the on-track action. Social distancing, the COVID-19 code of conduct don't seem to have reduced the amount of paddock intrigue or indeed aggravation. There are a few big topics this weekend at the Hungaroring, perhaps unusually given this is the, the third leg of a triple header and normally news starts to run out of steam by this stage. But Mark, I have no intention of asking you if Sebastian Vettel is going to Aston Martin next year. But is Sebastian Vettel going to Aston Martin next year? <laughs> you trickster. Um, the way you worded that, yes, I see what you were doing there. You, you sort of king of humour. There, you, you were doing. You were using the same sort of language that Racing Point themselves were using when asked if Sebastian Vettel was going to be joining them. Um, so they said um, things like, um, "Well, it, both our existing drivers are contracted, so it would be logical that there's no space for them." Which, had he just said um, no. Um, that would have been it, but the wording is so clearly awkward in trying to <laughs> sort of tread a path without telling an outright porky that it's just uh, made it more and more obvious that, yes, there is something going on. There have been discussions and um, they are ongoing. So um, I don't want to, I've got no intention of saying um, I think Sebastian Vettel is in very serious discussions with um, the team that will become Aston Martin next year. Um, but I think that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, all the evidence is certainly pointing to it. The uh, the contorted statements of uh, Racing Point over quite an extended period of time have left the door open for this. And uh, Vettel himself wasn't uh, being especially uh, illuminating. But I, I think I've always liked the idea of this. I, th- I think it could be could be really, really good for them, couldn't it, Mark? Yeah, I think um, they're stepping up into the big league and uh, this would be a great way of uh, adding impetus to that. And you got the big spotlight on you um, when you... A, when you brand yourself as Aston Martin rather than just a, a, a racing team, and B, when you're bringing a four-time world champion to the team, so if, if they indeed do. Um, and I think that that can either um, have damaging effects or it can be the making of, um, of the team because, I, and I, I think actually they, they will react positively because it's a great little racing team. It's um, very well structured. It's always... Uh, the cl- the cliche is it punches above its weight, but it always has, and I think it's it's absolutely ready to perform under the spotlight. And so if 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 Seb came, that, I think they would respond um, very well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And of course, that team is going to get the weight it's wanted for for so long. But Scott, obviously, the key question is which driver's place does he take? Because like I said, both are under contract. Sergio Perez is the uh, is historically the stronger performer. Obviously, Lance Stroll, we talked about how his uh, hungry weekend went earlier, but there's obviously some push and pull there, and whether it's whether it's going to be the 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 owner's son or the uh, the established performer who's going to stay on. Yeah, well, it depends if it's going to be a sporting decision or it's going to be a familial decision. Um, I I think I think Stroll's got Stroll's got great potential, and he's obviously not a bad racing driver, so who's to say that he won't evolve into the sort of person that a team like Aston Martin will, will benefit from. But in Perez, you've got, you've got the perfect driver for, for that situation. He's about as good as you can be without being a race winner, isn't he? Sergio Perez. So, you know, tossing him out to, to bring someone in like Vettel, I mean, on paper, it's an upgrade, but in terms of the balance you're getting within the team, I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's worthwhile. So it's really difficult and it is a big test of the credentials of that team and how seriously we should be taking them because Perez represent Perez and Vettel represents a lineup that is that of a serious racing team. Vettel and Stroll is more representative of a team that is that wants to be serious but is ultimately beholden to the to the will of, of its owner. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And ultimately, Stroll's in his fourth season. He needs to deliver consistently. It's all well and good saying, oh, well, he qualified third at the Hungaring, but that, that needs to be a level of performance that's consistent relative to, to what the car can do. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the pressure is on there. And I, I agree, it's it's a test of the, the credibility of this team. I mean, you never know. It may be that Lance Stroll now has a tremendous run of races and he outperforms Sergio Perez, but until, until he starts to do that, um, he has to be judged according to to his performance. I said that when he came in, that he has to be judged according to what he does because people were talking him down, but now he's here also at the same time. He has to be judged by what he's got to do. But 
I think in general, keeping Sebastian Vettel on the grid will be great. I'd love to see him carry on and a motivated Sebastian Vettel with something to prove in an Aston Martin is a, is a really uh, tantalising prospect. And I think, yeah, I, th- I think it could benefit both sides. It's just a question of uh, do they make the correct driver choice. Uh, that's the intrigue out of the way. So should we get on to the aggro? Because everyone always enjoys that. Um, the prodigious pace of that pink Mercedes is rubbing plenty of other teams up the wrong way. We've learned a bit more about the Renault protest with the uh, the brake ducts. There's also a little bit of kicking off about this very badly named loophole that's been revealed that's actually just something that's written in the regs that allows teams who take non-listed parts from their rivals to to upgrade from 19 spec to 20 spec if they're currently running uh, the the older spec that's for the next year without using tokens, so it's a way for AlphaTauri, Haas, and Racing Point to improve uh, the, the spec of their car outside of that. So, Mark, I mean, this at the heart of all of this is just how extreme Racing Point have, have been with their copy of the Mercedes, and the fact that certain teams think they've they've probably overstepped the mark, whether it's according to the letter of the law or whether it's just in terms of what Formula One should be. There's a lot of people who are really annoyed with what they're doing, aren't they? Yes, and as you say, it's that distinction between the letter of the law and um, what those rivals um, think the law should should have been and how it should have been written. Um, but in the case of the um, the suspension and gearbox, it's, a, it's not a particularly contentious issue if it was Alpha and Haas upgrade to Ferrari's current one, but it is suddenly very contentious of Racing Point do it with the Mercedes because they, they're already very competitive and B, because the particularly rear end arrangement on the 2020 Mercedes is um, quite radical and probably very aerodynamically powerful. It's got a very narrow narrow angle in the uh, lower wishbone at the rear, which allows it to be swept right the way back, which gets it out of the way of the, the airflow around the diffuser. So it's probably a very powerful aerodynamic upgrade just in itself. So again, it's it's irritating to you know, the the engineers from the other teams will have spotted this, will have understood what Merck have done, and they'll be pr- probably trying to plan something similar for themselves. Um, but they they would have to use tokens if they were um, going to do it themselves. Whereas this is uh, you know they they see this as giving a helping hand to an already um, uh, very quick car that uh, they they believe has um, broken some mythical spirit of the regulations as Adrian Newey likes to say there's no such thing as a spirit of the regulation regulation but yeah when it comes to the rules Scott this is explicit isn't it it says this is what happens it, they've all agreed to it so I just find it a bit odd a that anyone's suggesting it's a loophole because a loophole implies there's an ambiguity or it's a bit of a gap between rules but this is absolutely explicit you know a, a child of six could read that particular rule and understand what it means so it, it seems a little bit trying to shut the stable door after the horse has bolted on, on the part of the other teams doesn't it yeah i wonder if um i wonder if the mess the reference of it as a loophole was a bit of um uh martian Buzz, budkowski at renault sort of misspeaking slightly and then a bunch of people picking it up and not really interrogating it basically i think that's what's happened because when i spoke to i spoke to andreas seidel at mclaren about it and he said it's more it's more it's illogical and i agree it is illogical because McLaren's got an agreement in place to, to change engine, but it's been forced into a compromise. But Racing Point's pre-existing agreement is allowed to be honoured. So how does that work? That's not fair. So I completely agree with that. I think it is illogical. Um, and according to Seidel, it's something that has been challenged for a long time. So there has been a running dialogue over this, and the dialogue is still ongoing. And I think the likes of McLaren and Renault are pushing quite hard to get it changed. I don't know how possible that is. I don't know how far Racing Point would be down the line of acting on it, um, but it's certainly something that's not going to be um, forgotten about, should we say. Yeah, well, you can understand that maybe in the rush to get the regs sorted, because this is all going on in the, the peak of COVID-19 lockdowns and everything, and the, the sort of emergency measure. So maybe they could suggest it was something that was uh, perhaps missed in, in the rush. So yeah, interesting to see where that goes. But the yeah, the whole brake ducts thing, uh, Nicholas Tombasis of the FI has talked a little bit about it. And it all seems to, it, it's all focused on the process, isn't it? And it's this whole confusion that last year brake ducts were not listed parts, so you could get them from other people if you want to do this year they are and there's a suggestion of uh, of the transfer of, of design data as a result from 19 to 20 but i, I did ask Scott Safnauer, the team principal at racing point about this and he said that they, they didn't get design or brake ducts from mercedes in 2019 even though 
you can see the brake ducts are very, very similar last year. So that's going to be one of the things they, they focus on. We expect to have an answer on that before Silverstone. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge, huge talking point. But there's one other area of aggravation as well, which is up the, uh, well, I was going to say up the, the fashionable end of the grid, but actually it's only one place uh, beyond Racing Point on uh, on raw pace, certainly uh, from the weekend with uh, Toto Wolf seems quite irritated with Mattia Bonotto, doesn't he, Scott? Yeah, he does. Um, it's quite amusing. Um, not because of the reasons for it, because obviously it's very serious, but I just quite like it when we had most of 2019 or the second half of 2019 where Toto was clearly trying to be quite polite about it and um, in the face of all of the scrutiny over Ferrari's engine legality. And even at the end of the year and even really at the start of this year, he was still biting his tongue and being quite civil and professional. And now just we've had a couple of weekends where he's just not having it, is he? First, he was really, really ticked off at Ferrari, constantly complaining about different things. Oh, we've got an aero weakness. Oh, the aero was this, the aero was that. And ignoring the engine element. And now Ferrari have come out and said that the FAA technical directives that were put in place to stop people cheating has made them go slower. But Ferrari still insists it wasn't doing anything illegal last year. To which, um, am I allowed to swear on this podcast, Ed, or if not? In a quote, you can, as long as it's just Okay, excellent. Yeah, Toto said that that's complete bullshit, um, which I think Mark will have enjoyed because I believe it was Mark that put that question to him. Yeah, indeed. And um, he's very, um, very uh, bit trigger-happy. Anything to do with Ferrari or, or Matteo Bonotto at the moment, whether it's Concord Agreement or um, whatever the reason is for Ferrari's performance shortfall. And um, he made he then made a very powerful point, actually. He said, you know, we um, extended ourselves to the point of exhaustion last year in the, in the power unit competing against, and he didn't say against who, but competing against our rivals. And um, since, as a result of that, as a result of what he's um, implying was trying to better an, a legal engine, um, that's what he contends, is that um, they have made fantastic gains as a result, which has just um, you know, increased, the, increased the pain on Ferrari all, all the more. So he said, I find that quite ironic. And um, But I do, it, it, I've been thinking about why he might have, why in particular he might have, become more angry about the whole thing later and I'm only speculating here I don't know anything um, about this but you know it's been announced that Andy Cowell is leaving his role um, as a you know, head of the powertrains at Mercedes and done a fantastic job over the years to create this uh, the whole hybrid era dominance really is um, he takes an awful lot of the credit for that and, and now he's going and when Toto said they're competing to the point of exhaustion I wonder if there's a link between the choice of that term and the, the loss of Andy to the team, and I wonder if that's made Toto particularly um, hacked off because he feels he, if he feels that he's lost this, you know, fantastic part of the team as a result of competing against something which he feels wasn't actually legitimate. That's an interesting theory, actually, and uh, it fits the fact. Certainly, the use of that word exhaustion in reference to it is quite interesting. I mean, there was already the underlying annoyance because I think there was a feeling that Ferrari had gone too far and people didn't want to directly protest them for the good of Formula One and all that kind of thing, which I'm always a bit suspicious of that, uh, that approach because I always think a good sensible legal appeals protest system is uh is a good is a good thing not a bad thing um in the end we've got this sort of behind closed doors thing but i think uh i certainly get the impression that, that when bonotto started suggesting that there may be anything remotely unfair or wrong in the subsequent technical directives uh certainly played a part as well in uh sparking that didn't it so it's uh yeah that there's there's loads of sensitivities there and we expect that in formula one but uh yeah, interesting to see where that goes. And we've got the whole Concord thing going on in the background that we're sort of we've been trying to get to the bottom of because uh, there's there's a little bit of uh, heel dragging on on signing that. And the Concord's obviously very very can very very sensitive thing because there's so much money involved with it. So yeah, I, I think we're going to continue to see this aggro over over the coming races. It's quite interesting, isn't it, Scott? Even though uh, we've been following it from afar, uh, it's it's good to have this kind of uh, needle going on as a little subplot. 
Yeah, absolutely. Especially because we don't have the battle on the track. So, <laughs> um, it's nice to have some kind of, uh, it's nice to have some kind of, uh, sort of aggravation or, or, or battle going on. It's also quite good because I think context and context is everything. And nobody can outright come, come out and say that Ferrari was cheating last year. It wasn't found guilty of anything, but there were doubts. The governing body had doubts. The governing body's still not 100% convinced that what Ferrari was doing was legal. So the fact that it all ended up getting wrapped up in a confidential settlement was quite disappointing, really. And it felt like this was a major issue that had just sort of been swept under the rug. And I quite like that even if it takes someone like Toto getting ticked off, I'm glad that it's not being left to just sort of be ignored, if you see what I mean. I'm glad that there is sort of someone calling it out for what it is. Yeah, I think you're right there. I, I don't think uh, a lack of transparency is not, it's just not a very, very good thing. I know it's complicated, but uh, yeah, it, it's not reflected that well on uh, on Formula One as a whole, should we say, in the capacity to police what admittedly is very complicated and complex things. So uh, yeah, interesting to see how that, uh, that goes on. And, uh, you know, all these things are interconnected. And obviously, Mercedes is effectively implicated in the Mercedes in the racing point thing. But of course, they're explicitly not implicated as Tom Batista said in terms of the actual protest but they are connected to it they're in that orbit so it just creates all these extra layers to it and they feed into each other that's uh that's always been in uh, in Formula One even if it sometimes is a little bit of a distraction from what what goes on on track which is the the main business of F1 well obviously we'll have loads about this on the race.com website don't forget the hyphen you can read Mark Hughes race analysis you can complain about my driver ratings even read whatever Scott's been uh, putting together there's a good piece he's done about why Toto irritated which you can probably still uh, still see on the site among all the other race coverage uh, gary anderson of course as well we've got other podcasts gary anderson f1 show bring back v10s we've got the youtube channel if you just search for the race and we've got all sorts of things on there including me arguing why vettel should go to aston martin and uh, a look at all the latest topics in formula one uh, obviously we're going to have a week off now but the podcast won't have a week off we'll be able to regroup and have a bit of a look back over the season so far and the and the big stories before we all head off to silverstone to do it again with another triple header thanks for listening and join us next time 